the Exterminating Angel, which is a film by made by Luis Buñuel in 1962. It is uh, based in uh, part of the Mexican period uh, when he was making films in Mexico. And it is a film based on people who are stuck in a room <laughs> cannot leave for some mysterious, uh, for some mysterious unknown reason. Um, fantastic film. Um, I, I know why. I mean, I know it's a, for me, it's one of those films that like, you know, I, I hadn't watched it in many years. Uh, and so I watched it again. I was like, oh my God, it's gonna be one of those situations where I watch it. And this is like, I thought it was great, but now I think it's stupid, you know, getting older. But then like, <laughs> then as the scenes began to unfold, I'm like, oh no, 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 this is great. This is great. Um, and so, uh, um, man, what a masterpiece. Um, but like, I want to hear, I want to hear what everyone thinks, Sam, because I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Winwell fan. So like, uh, Let's let's before before I start just talking and rambling. Let's. Uh, what, 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 were, what were the impressions? David, do you want to go first? Uh, sure, sure, I'll go first. So, so I definitely do think that this film is a masterpiece, a surrealist masterpiece, um, and it has a lot of uh, crossover with the genre of uh, like a survival film. I, I do think is very interesting. Last week we were covering uh, Lord of the Flies. And a strong Lord of the Flies dynamic does emerge uh, within this film, um, this narrative about order and chaos. But it is interesting to see that overlapping with uh, strong religious overtones and, uh, and that surrealism that we're talking about. Louis Bunel, of course, his first uh, film, Un Chien Andalou, uh, made in France, a surrealist movie um, with a screenplay by Salvador Dali, and um, that we see um, from that first film, which largely had no story or a largely uh, nonsensical or surreal story, we see the development of his craft into this, which has uh, a, a strong narrative, a beginning, a middle, and end, but has all of these surrealist flourishes. So I think that's part of the reason why this film has endured for so long is because unlike the films, um, one could argue the more influential films that Bunuel made in a later period, like um, uh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which is almost uh, the same film as this one. Uh, there are a lot of similarities. Um, or The Milky Way, or uh, The Phantom of Liberty. Um, this film has that strong narrative. It has that um, for people who are looking for a story with a clear cut beginning, middle and end. So I think it's this great combination of both of those, those types of uh, modes of filmmaking from the extremely surreal and experimental beginnings with Fenshi and Andalou to um, some of the political messaging that would uh, dominate his later work, uh, the religious stuff and um, this almost like science fiction-y uh, type plot and then survival plot that emerges within this film. There's a lot going on and um, yeah. Yeah, that's good. That, that's, um, this was my first viewing of this movie, though I had read about the film and it, it came across when I would get you know, into like film studies or film history and yet I'd never seen it. So this was my first experience seeing it. And that's always interesting the first time because what's going through your mind, like what was going through my mind first, the first thing I noticed was that I loved the cinematography 
that I felt like the cinematography was suspenseful in itself. There was a suspense about the cinematography, the way it was shot, the motion of the camera. Um, kept, it kept moving towards something and moving towards the characters. And I really, I really loved that. It made me wonder if people like Dante Spinotti, like, or Spinotti, um, who shot Ellie Confidential didn't have influences like that. Because you see that now, you see a lot of that cinematography now. Whereas at this time, you'll notice you, you know, there were a lot of, there were more still frames. So this to me at this period, this was what, 62, this film? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, at that time, this was, this felt like, um, this was a relatively new development in cinematography, the way this was shot. Um, and uh, I also, so I noticed that right straight away. And then the other thing I was noticing was that the characters, they seem to start out very vapid, but then they quickly develop like these really kind of absurdist personalities, you know? And that I thought was really fascinating. Like the first, the first like 10, 15 minutes, you're thinking, oh God, this is just gonna be a bunch of bourgeois, you know, like they're just gonna be horrible horribly boring, horribly dull, horribly, horribly typical, but it shifts very quickly. And it seems like the first shift ironically occurs in their response to when the, uh, the one loyal servant, you know, sp sp falls, falls, splays out, you know, and all the food goes flying. And they're, they're diff they're, they're, you see that shift in their response. The typical response is just to act as though, you know, go and clean that up. And then it sort of reverses and comes forward again. And then the response is very bizarre. And the lady of the house wants to go chasing after him. And it's, it's, it's just really interesting the way that was developed and the way it was built. And there, there's so much more that I wanna say. I don't wanna say too much yet, but it really strikes you almost immediately that you're watching something that is not going to be typical. It gives you little hints, but there's a point where it really shifts, you know? So it's, it's a really interesting statement too on, on society, like classism and things like this, but we'll get more into that too. But I, I, I loved it actually. The more I watched it, the more I loved it. Yeah, to tie into what you were saying, Gene, um, I, I definitely agree. It starts off with a very strong uh, upstairs, downstairs vibe, uh, like a comedy of manners type vibe. Um, which makes the emergence of the survival kind of aspect of it even more um, thrilling or, or um, but yeah, it starts off kind of like uh, you get like uh, the rules of the game type uh, uh, thing going on or, uh, you know, more recently Downton Abbey that you're thinking that it's going to be about the particularities of the interplay between the, the, the maids and the, the chefs and the servants with, with the rich. And you just get these little glimpses that something else is going on, right? Like um, the repetition of the people uh, coming in upstairs um, is, is really, really odd. You get, they cut to the bear and the sheep being uh, in the kitchen. You're just like, you're wondering, am I supposed to take this literally on any kind of level? What does this mean, you know? <laughs> so so what does it mean Matt 
Well, I mean, I love, I love the, I mean, some of the initial conflicts to tell you something weird is going on, right? So, like, some of the initial conflicts, like, uh, one of them is like, they're, they're talking, and um, the, the guy Russell is, he says something to them, like, you know, like, no, like, you know, continue your conversation. I have no patience for mumbo jumbo or something like that. And he, like, walks off, right? And it's like these, like, weird little things uh, where this guy introduces people that he doesn't know just so he can walk away. Right. And then he's like, he's like, you know, oh, she has cancer. What's going to happen? He's like, oh, she's going to be completely bald in like three months. Like, you know, it's just the vanity. Like, just bizarre. And then the doctor he throws, a, throws a, a, a rock through a window. And she's like, they're like, um, they're like, what was that? And then someone's like, oh, it must have been a wandering Jew. <laughs> like, what the, fuck? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? And then, like, they're like, no, it was the Valkyrie. Oh, what an exciting woman, right? <laughs> and, like, and so, like, and that's going to play out later that, you know, she's the one that kind of, like, disturbs, like, these little, like, she's the one that kind of, like, has these breakout moments, like, you know, yeah. um, represents kind of chaos and disorder. But, like, uh, there's that. And then, but then, but then there's, like, this, like, the couple playing a game, right? And so, mm -hmm. like, in the middle of that, you see this couple playing a game, like, how, who are you? I don't know. Like, are you single? And they're, they're playing this little game with each other, but they're really flirting. So that's something that would happen, like, that, that, that's actually normal. But that right. is juxtaposed against these things that are very abnormal, very abnormal interactions where, like, this kind of polite veneer is broken and then mm -hmm. reestablished. So you have this polite veneer being broken and reestablished that's going to, like, foreshadow um, what's coming later, but... Um, but in the moments that it happens at first, it's, it's, it's kind of jarring because you're like, you know, everyone thinks it's like polite, ridiculous conversation. Then I know where they're like, you know, like, you know, like, um, you know, like, are you, you know, like, well, you know, are you from here? Like, oh, you tell me first. Like, uh, yeah. They're like, how long are you in town? Like, you tell me first. And they're like, oh, I'm from here. I, I, you know, I suspected as much. Those two characters, I think they meet each other three different times and they don't seem to recall. <laughs> but they met each other before yeah and then the masons making secret signs to each other before mm. before before all hell breaks loose that was another <laughs> one um there's just so there's so much to go into but i mean the very but the early scenes the early scenes um where you have kind of like this breakup of these like like these polite little patterns um it's just really you know it's really quite something i mean like what i what i mean i it really i mean the, the, the thing you know it's like there's there's so many characters. There's like like there's like twenty yeah, of us, right? Yeah. So it's hard to even know where to begin without just talking about everything. But so like, I mean, it's almost like I'd rather just talk about like one one or two. And they all, almost all of them have arcs, right? Mm -hmm. So like you know, with the exception of very few characters who just kind of come and go, almost all of them have some type of arc that they go through and experience. So I mean, like one of the ones that really interested me this time I was watching was the couple. Right, the, the 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 betrothed couple, the ones that were you know, uh, uh, Ed, Eduardo and Beatrice. Yeah, Eduardo and Beatrice, the, the architect, and uh, um, was interesting to me is like it, you know it it calls back to a lot of his other work where people just like want to be alone and they just want to like or they don't want to be alone they want to like they want to they want to do what people want to do, um, but all <laughs> society is like standing in their way and like uh, it reminds me of. Um, uh, not Unchen Anjali, but uh, I think I think it's La Jour, the the, the Age of Gold, mm. the one he made afterwards, where this guy is like trying to like be alone with his sweetheart, but he keeps like things keep getting in the way. And I think at one point he like gets his foot caught on like a piano and he's chasing, <laughs> running after her, carrying this <laughs> piano with him the whole way. And then eventually he gets to the room and he, he and he throws out the lamp, he throws out the couch, he throws out a priest, you know, like all these things standing in his way. <laughs> from like you know from like living his living his best life 
And so like that, that's this constant thing with Boomwell is that there's all these things in society that stand between us and, and what we really want to do. Um, mm. And what was interesting about Exterminating Angels, like sometimes that's good though. I mean, there are things that should stand between us and doing whatever we want to do. And sometimes it's bad. And, 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 and characters can embody both. Like I want to get into it later, but like the character of Alvaro, right? The character of the Colonel, like mm. he really embodies both. I mean, he's- Oh, right. It's both good that like he like provides calm because people are about to kill each other and he like intervenes, but it's also bad because he's like the most dishonest character in the in the in the in the, in the entire thing. For yeah, begins later. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Similarly, there's uh, Raul. I really uh, picked up on this time that Raul is probably one of the clearest villains. I would say Raul. Uh, Raul is the the larger gentleman who uh, really hates. Better? Uh, the host uh, Edmundo uh, who wants to kill him he blames him for everything that happened so but Raul actually has a hero moment where he takes the mace and uh, uh, open bursts open the pipe and then he's actually the one who says uh, the women first you know let's uh, let's institute you know civility here um, where he's the one who's later breaking it um so yeah, I, I do find it interesting that that like Matt said, the, a lot of the characters in here are not purely good or evil. Edmundo, you know, at the end, um, you know, reveals that he uh, just slept with the Valkyrie, presumably. Um, so there's a lot of shifting that's going on. And Alvaro's interesting because he's going to be the youngest general or youngest something. He's going to get promoted soon. But he says that he hates war. So a lot of the characters have these contradictions. I think one of the few ones that doesn't really is um, the, the woman who's uh, practicing Kabbalah. So maybe there is something of an anti-Semitism going on in this film. Because <laughs> they have the line about it must have been the Jew outside. And then this woman is practicing Kabbalah, the ancient uh, Jewish form of mysticism. Um, and I think she is one of the characters who has some of the, the nastier things to say in the movie um, that make the political themes of the movie more clear. Um, she is the one who talks, I believe, although some of the characters look really similar in this movie, so I, I definitely <laughs> could be wrong. But I think she's the one who said, talks about the experience of uh, the train car that she saw a crash in uh, Nice, France, and that it was a horrible, it was a slaughter, but, you know, she wasn't moved by the death of the poor. And then one of the other characters joins in and says, well, you know, I, the poor don't feel like we do, you know? So that's one of the strong things right off the bat that kind of, you know, erodes our sympathy towards this, towards these characters. And I feel like one of Gunwell's gifts with the film is actually putting us back on some kind of um, level of empathy with them by the end of the film um, that we do by seeing their suffering and their breakdown. Um, we do uh, regain a measure, especially because we get this, this layering of, uh, you know, the good and, and the bad within all of them. Yeah, I would, I, I'm talking, it's really interesting because what I was thinking is 
that that question is is answered by the end when she says, well, we feel differently when the reason that they feel differently is because now they've been through a circumstance that they previously wouldn't have related to because of their wealth. They would not have experienced that kind of ravage. And now they have, you know, so there's definitely is a, a, a class commentary. The, the servants have the premonition not to be there for this, this atrocity that's about to happen. And like the Lord of the Flies, what we start to see in Exterminating Angel is a group of people in extreme circumstances where civility breaks down. Uh, all the good breeding in the world is not going to save you if you don't have food or water or access to sexuality, like the conductor, was it, who tries to leap on one woman, then he leaps on the, you know, the other woman. Um, and there is that remark about how he should be the first to go because there are too many conductors anyway. <laughs> you know, it was like... <laughs> Like that was so weird because that was so weird. Now that was one of the most surreal moments for me because I thought that's like an attorney joke in the U.S. <laughs> like there are too many attorneys, <laughs> but there are too many conductors. <laughs> and it's a total authorio, even though you can barely like get up and move. <laughs> and he's got this young tart of a wife, but it's not enough for him, you know. And just I think what I think what they. Seeing is that in in any circumstance, given any extreme circumstance, whatever is inside of a person is going to come out one way or the other. You know, it's it, because the, we would have only seen the superficiality of these characters, the vapidness that we see in, initially, until these extreme circumstances start. I keep going back to that moment where the the servant goes flailing but you're right there was that re repetition of let's go upstairs with our coats you know and I keep thinking about the sheep we see the sheep running up you know the bear never comes in the room but the sheep do like lambs to the slaughter you know mm. and they're doomed to repeat it they go into the church but they're not saved from it you know and I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of us but it isn't, it's an, I kept thinking to myself, this is, he's making a statement because he's making a statement that the lambs will always go to the slaughter and, you know, society is doomed to repeat these circumstances. Mm. The wealthy don't seem to get beyond themselves to, to extend a hand to somebody else, but it doesn't stop that from repeating itself and it doesn't stop the lambs running to the slaughter. In other words, those who have not will continue to run to that and repeat that pattern as will the wealthy right yeah. right and you brought up that was interesting too that david that you brought up the kabbalah because did you notice that after she did her ritual we saw the blood under the door the you know the the, oh. the, the brother the brother who's you know really annoying <laughs> he finds the blood <laughs> on the floor <laughs> You know, he, he touches his hand to it and he's looking at it. We find out it's the lovers. The lovers are the sacrificial, the first sacrificial human lives. But the connection between her oh, ritual and when ah. he discovers the, 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 the obnoxious brother finds the lovers is kind of interesting, isn't it? 
like yeah. did her like, like you and what you said about anti-Semitism did did her ritual work the implication there for me is yes it did because she mm. said we have to wait until the last lamb is slaughtered they're getting ready to, to slaughter the sheep for food but what we really see are the lovers so what's sacrificed is true love some form of real expression is sacrificed mm. right yeah. so I'd like to hear what you guys think about that well, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's totally possible that it's a miracle. I, I mean, like, the whole thing is just, like, I mean, you got the Masons making a call to, like, to, to a bear. You have, you remember like, what they said? Hi-ho? It's time! Yeah. Now is the hour of maximum depression. Utter the unutterable phrase. The unutterable is hi-ho! <laughs> and it was hi-ho! <laughs> and then uh and then you have i mean and and, and you know before that you have um <laughs> the women with the woman with like the, the chicken feet in and like she's got like that's the, what you're the, talking about yeah yeah that's the kabbalah woman the kabbalah, kabbalah, woman, the kabbalah ritual like the chicken feet yeah. and, the, and the next to the hold <laughs> oh in the reverse yeah I'm no, but I'm saying, but, but you see it earlier, like before when they're when she's when the the the, the oh, yeah. going on, yeah, 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 it's kind of like foreshadowed Which, or revealed. Or... She can see that... and feathers in her purse. She has the she has the she says she she it's something told her to bring the key, but because she's Kabbalah, you know, the key is symbolic. So apparently, the symbolic key has to do with the chicken feet and the feathers we see in her elegant clutch handbag. Like what? <laughs> and, and that's not and that's not even a Kabbalah ritual to my mind. That's actually unless they're talking about sacrifice, but you wouldn't sacrifice a chicken. That's more like Vodun or something, you know. So it's it is it, it you know it's funny. It's I think I've become very strange because I watch this movie and I think for me the surreal feels more real than the real. It would have been more surreal if this would have been an entire film about characters just staying stoic through all of this mm. because it's you know in extreme circumstances we all become very extreme versions of ourselves don't we yeah that's true for everybody no matter what our upbringing our breeding our sense of etiquette when it comes to survival is what lord of the flies and Exter the exterminating angel tells us yeah what it can tell us is that what it, when it comes to survival class goes out the window etiquette goes out the window breeding goes out the window decorum goes out the window except well, like you pointed out though then they then he said let the ladies go first let's try to have some let's try to remind ourselves of some semblance of decorum but it's only there very thinly and loosely isn't it yeah but the whole thing the, the thing that you know there's like this uh, uh there's always like this attempt to reestablish order right there's always like breakdown of order, attempt to reestablish order. Or, but to me, I mean, it just so it's it's so damn funny. Like just the moments where people like have these outbreaks, like you know, out of nowhere, like they're all like they're all like sitting there, like what are we gonna do? Oh no! And also, I know it's like, what? What are they looking for us? You know what else I noticed that was interesting too was when you did understand what they were saying, like, you know, permiso, and you know, the 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 subtitle was excuse me, mm -hmm. because we don't have the same understanding of what it means to say 
with permission. Yeah. You know, it was interesting to watch the subtitles, look at the subtitles, but listen to what they were saying. Because yeah. I know en enough Spanish and I know Italian better, but there are those similarities in the Latin languages that I'm going, wait a minute, that's actually, that's not exactly how I would translate that. Mm. Because there were certain references that I think that we were meant to understand from a cultural perspective that meant something a little bit different than the literal English translation of it. Yeah, a lot of I'm, a lot of the interactions were more formal than the translations. Like the the translations were, you know, English is a little more I don't know, it's a little more utilitarian literal, or something like that. Huh? Literal, literal utilitarian, just like you know, this is a pen. You know, there's not there's no way of, there's no way of romanticizing this pen. And <laughs> like you know, get back to work. You right. know? Like, like, but uh, it's yeah, not so, an icky friend. It is just a pen. You're right. Utilitarian is a really good word for it, Matt. That's yeah. an excellent way of describing it. It's a factory language, but um, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah. So I think there was a lot. There's a lot more formality in the way they were speaking to each other. But then it would, it would completely break down, and it would be like you know, it'd be a little bit down. But like you know, it's really interesting to me the character of um, can't remember all their names, but the guy that wants to kill the guy that wants to kill the host, Raul. Raul. Yeah. So Raul gets slapped by the Valkyrie. It smacked around, but at no point in time does Raul ever like hit a woman or, or strike any 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 women there, right? right? It is Alvaro. It is Alvaro who actually attacks a woman. Oh yeah. When they're riding yeah. around on the floor, you mean? No, he throws a woman off the couch because she's like, you know, save us. Oh, tell he pushes you. her. Yeah. He's like, well, I'm trying to remember now who ended up on the floor. The sister of the obnoxious brother and Aunt Anna. Yeah. 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 Who, yeah. who tackled her? Who was that? Who did that? Remember, they were on the floor. Oh. Yeah, I can't remember who's the one who grabs the knife. There's one of the characters who grabs the knife, and he's ready to kill someone, and I think it's a woman. And, yeah. Uh, and then it all gets broken up. But yeah. Yeah. Was that Raul? It was Raul. That was my theory. Yeah, but like, yeah, it was. But I mean, but you know, yeah. with with Alvaro, he's supposed to be the guy who's got you know him and him and Edmundo are supposed to be seen as like these these the the men of like true you know, valor and principles, uh, along with the doctor, like the, the and everyone else is kind of mm -hmm. like, either like failing or like, you know, grandstanding, but these are the guys, right? But like, you know, it begins with, Al the whole thing begins even before the, 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 everyone gets locked in with Alvaro, like plotting with, uh, with Lucia, with, uh, with um, the, the lady of the house to, uh, to, to have an illicit affair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right. And he's like, and well, what if he comes? He's like, well, we'll, we'll tell him that uh, I, I was showing you the banister. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is actually really funny to see throughout the movie is that is that they don't hide it. Like, right? Right. they spent all these days together and uh, Alvaro and Lucia, they start, they're just hugging each other, sitting on each other, leaning on each other all. And Ed, Edmundo sees this numerous times and he never says anything about he it. He seems to be the only one who doesn't know. I mean, all the other characters are like, oh, look at this, <laughs> you know, and things like this. He seems to be the only one who's like totally unaware, even though you're right, he's witnessing it, but he seems to be like unaware. I was, once, I was once told that a gentleman's response is sublime indifference. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which is, I think, really gets to the heart of a lot of what's going on in this movie. So, 
you know, taking it closer to the beginning is that uh, they're starting to figure out kind of the science fictiony type or fantasy type rules of what's going on, uh, that this is some kind of barrier, um, not a force field, but it, it's, it's a way it fills people with this feeling that they should turn around and do something else. They can't pass it. It makes them sick. Um, and it affects people uh, the same way on the outside, right? But what is really interesting to see, as, as Gene pointed out earlier, is that the servants, they catch some idea of this early on, and they know to get out. They know to go away, right? They, right. they feel that something bad is going to happen. Whereas the rich um, exist uh, in, this, in this perpetual state of denial. Um, so even, you know, the first night unfolds in a very surreal manner because a lot of these rules haven't begun to take shape yet. They're just like, oh, well, let me talk to this person and oh, what's going on here? And oh, I think I forgot my shawl. I got to get it. So they're constantly making excuses, you know, to stay and it's only very, very slowly that they start to become aware that there is this kind of outside phenomenon that's even going on. But it is very interesting to see that denial um, um, persist. And even as they're starting to break down, you know, what's going on, they're starting slowly to figure out. What I like is that uh, one of the guests, uh, she says, Yes, I've been noticing what's been going on, and personally, I don't like it. And so, what I like about <laughs> what I like about what I really like about that moment is that they're slowly they're slowly starting to construct that there's this big force, that there's something going on that's larger than them and any of their foibles. Right? They're starting to figure yeah. out that there's a phenomenon, <laughs> but she's concerned with the impropriety what's you know the breakdown of their social norms she's yes. conflating the two you know that she's thinking yes. that they're yes. somehow inextricably linked and there's a lot of that there's a lot of this conflation um you could say it's a lot of deconstruction of religion that's going on but there might be ultimately some kind of religious message uh we we mentioned freemasonry and kabbalah i think it's also interesting in the way that um Roman Catholicism is discussed and lampooned in ways, uh, or at least the way that the rich uh, interact with Roman Catholicism in this uh, movie. So for example, uh, Alvaro proposes <coughs> to get themselves out of this situation that they say a rosary, which immediately uh, Edmundo and um, Lucia, uh, the, the patron and matron uh, respectively of the house, um, they say, well, we've, pro we've promised each other that we will pay to have a mass said uh, in thanks if we get out of this situation. So their response to prayer and to humility and groveling is to pay their way uh, into something or out of something. That's um, this is quickly followed up by the doctor talking to his patient who's dying of cancer now of this this sickness, this force, this whatever it is, mysterious uh, circumstance. And she's uh, asked for the doctor uh, to take her to Lourdes 
I think it is, which is yes. a, a Catholic miracle site. Um, and but uh, and it's a really sweet moment. It's really nice. Um, but she doesn't leave it at that. She says, I want one of those washable plastic figurines. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That was great. That was the materialism just creeps right back in because they do actually have the mass they do fulfill that but right. it's not because of a desire to be it's not out of a desire to remain in integrity it's all about the posturing it doesn't have the significance which is why it's interesting with the kabbalah lady because hers actually, despite how utterly bizarre it is, it seems to have more significance than their adherence. It almost as though they adhere to a religion because that's what's expected of them. Mm. I mean, what leads to their perceived escape, though not really an escape because we see what happens, is what do they do? They act out what they did before they perform their what would be expected of them uttering the niceties about the piano performance mm. they act out the niceties of how they felt about it or what they thought of it and they even say it without any real feeling so this is the emptiness, or you, if you will, the poverty of their situation. The poverty of the wealth is such that if they're trapped in their own world in the form of a room, not one of them has the wherewithal to go to the kitchen to get food. <laughs> you know, it's like, really? That's your mindset? That's the prison of your mindset? I mean, you've got, you've got the, the, the one faithful servant eating paper. I mean, at least he has the wherewithal to eat paper, you know. He has he has better survival skills than these people, right? It's like it's just it. There is a lot going on in this movie that clearly it's you can tell it's not just an incidental. Let's be weird, you know. And you see this now, like if someone tries to imitate David Lynch, and it goes very badly because they misunderstand why David Lynch appears to be so strange, but there is a value and a meaning underneath it. And I would imagine that somebody like Lynch would be very inspired by this movie because there is a lot of subtext. Like we talked about subtext and we talked about the seventh seal. Mm -hmm. And we talked about it a bit in Lord of the Flies. There was a lot of it in the seventh seal. And I'd say there is a lot of it in this. We're not just seeing these characters act in this manner because the filmmakers wants us to say how strange this is. He actually wants to say, there are some things about this that are not so strange. This is underneath the personality of any person, no matter what they're breeding, no matter what their status in society. Underneath there is a certain kind of perversity that in just the right situation is going to come out one way or the other. And it's this is how it's going to impact other people. Yeah. And that's I mean, so much, pretty cool. So much of what they are though is what are they? I mean, they're people who are used to being pampered. They're people who are used to being like, you know, 
having, you know, a, a servant, having a staff, having all these people, you know, cater to them, right? And so it is, it is people who are, who don't have people to cater to them, who know to get the hell out. And who know, <laughs> like, you know, who know, like, you know, like, time to go. And like, you know, like they, 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 you know, they could sense something was wrong. And I was like, you know what, we need to get out of here. I don't even know what it is. But like, but there, there was, you know, they had like, a, I don't know, I mean, what's a good sense. They had the good sense to leave. And so like, and so, you know, they took off. And I think that it's, it's, it's again, like a, similar to, you know, to with Lord of the Flies, we have you know, the situation where people were talking about like, you know, we're British, we're going to do this right. You know, they keep like reaffirming their breeding and their good, you know, their good uh, manners and their, and their, their, um, and who they are in society. Right. But it's precisely because they are those people that they have, they, they are so used to being served by, by, by other people that they began, they begin to demand of each other, um, that same level of service, that same yeah. level of subservience. And, yeah. and that, and that is the cause of their breakdown. Had they been these people of quote unquote lower breeding or lower, they might've been able to do things a little, little better. Now, you know, in a Boonwell film that is, that's no guarantee because like he, 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 he has a tendency to, to, to just lampoon everyone, right. Rich and poor. Yeah. Um, but that, that, that kind of, um, which is very equitable of him, I think. <laughs> no, it's very equitable. Yeah, no, it really is. Uh, and it's probably very accurate, actually. It's probably more accurate. Because um, he brings back the servants who are now mocking the situation. You know, it's like they're they're not exactly blameless either. You know that, no. and they're free to do that because they don't have any consequence of them being fired. They're like, oh, look at this. <laughs> they're all trapped in there, and they smell bad too. <laughs> 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 but you know you know what's really interesting though is that you know Louis Bunuel is really big on like capturing like scenes and like and like um and like uh you know these 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 hallowed images and then like putting them somewhere so like uh the most the most famous example is the the film he made Virginia where he had um where he recreates um the the last supper right mm -hmm. and then it pauses but it's like a last supper of like these derelicts and they're all like like that and it's but the whole point is to like kind of demystify certain things right but the very the very interesting thing is that when he does these things and he like has these freeze frames um or these kind of like you know like like really like these really just like slow moving things where you're really taking in where everyone's positioned um in doing so he creates his own iconography you know what i mean like in like in, in in the takedown of iconography he creates his own iconography so like in the scenes where like in the scene in the beginning and then how they end up escaping, I mean, or at the concert, the little concert scene that gets re replicated, it, it's very, it's very iconic to like, to, to look at like, you know, here's how they were gathered at one time on their full regale. And then here's, now here's how they look after this experience. Um, and it's very, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like he, he's, he's a huge iconoclast, but in doing it so well, he becomes an icon himself. You know, he becomes like, you know, the greatest surrealist, um, filmmaker of the 20th century so it's like <laughs> it's kind of interesting <laughs> so i was saying in terms in terms of iconic moments in this film uh, one that probably stays with me the longest is um the nightmare or the night uh night terror uh scene or a waking daymare rather uh scene involving the disembodied hand uh, that scene is badass. Uh, <laughs> probably inspired the Adams family. Uh, what is it? Thing? I thing. think it's called. Thing. Yeah. thing or is it it? No thing. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Thing. So thing. So you have this disembodied hand, 
And I really love how it's almost like uh, whimsical at first. It kind of gives you a second to kind of ease into it. It has a little, you know, undertones. And, she, and, and the woman uh, gets a statue and she puts it on there. And you say, okay, it's okay, you know. And then you see the rustling and, oh, no, yeah, <laughs> strangling her. And I really love that. Um, I was thinking back to uh, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. And my favorite parts of that film are the horror uh, uh, mm-hmm. parts because they sneak up on you so much in the midst of all of this comedy um, and satire. Um, and I just love this scene. Um, I, I, I briefly watched uh, pieces of Unshien Andalou uh, last night. There's also a disembodied hand. Um, so I really like how, um, speaking to what Matt was saying about, you know, being this um, creator of great images, of memorable, memorable images, how many times Boonwell has worked with certain things uh, like uh, dismembered hands or ants or tables um and um yeah just continues to create can can create all of these different unexpected moods um and tones within the same film is is pretty remarkable it's interesting david while you're talking what occurs to me is in 1962 we were about to see the uh the elimination of the Hayes code which had been in effect since the 40s, because you have pre-code movies in the 30s in Hollywood. And then you started to have this Hayes Code, the production code. Mm. And um, that got lifted with Rosemary's Baby. I think was Rosemary's Baby 64? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Sounds about right. So this is just before this code is being lifted. So we didn't really have a horror genre at this point, Mm. per se. We had creature features. Well, weren't there the Hammer movies and, and whatnot? I'm trying to think. In 60s, yeah, yeah, Creature, yeah. Creature, creature feature. feature. We have, like Creature feature, which we now can say is sort of a, a type of horror from the period, mm. but real horror films like Rosemary's Baby was really, because of the lifting of the code, was really the beginning of what we would consider to be modern horror. So this is pre-modern horror. And what I, what occurred to me as you were talking, because I was thinking about that scene too, and I was thinking one of the scariest parts for me actually with the whole hand thing was when you just see something that's like either, uh, it's, it looks like a, a handkerchief or something that it's under. Did you remember that? Did you see that yeah. vibrating on the table like this? Like the hand is underneath it, right? And you're yeah. just like, oh my God, what the heck is it gonna do? <laughs> And I thought that was actually the scariest moment for me. And I thought, you know, that was probably a, a real precursor to modern horror. Because you see, like you were talking about the dismembered hand or the disembodied something or the body part or the this or the that or that kind of a scare where it kind of sneaks up on you. So you, you see the hints of it. You see the hand crawling out what looks like it's crawling out of the closet. And then it's suddenly underneath this handkerchief or something. And then it's over here. And she tries to smash it down with the statue. <laughs> And then they say, oh, my God, what did you do to your own hand? Remember that when she wakes right. up, right? right? She's done something to herself because this is this is her day mare. Like you said, her nightmare, her surreal mare. You know, we don't really know. It's sort of very Freudian. And I'm thinking, you know, that probably had another, that was probably a moment of impact on modern horror. Because mm. we, have, we have to keep in mind, if this is still the Hays Code era, there were a lot of things you still couldn't show until it was lifted and a movie like Rosemary's Baby came out. 
you know, just like you couldn't show a lot with the lovers, you could only imply what was happening. Right, right, you know, right. And he his hand over her rear, you know, but there's a lot you still can't see or show, but it's all implied. I mean, we know enough to have an idea of what was going on in that closet between those two people. <laughs> and it's, I think that's interesting. I, I hadn't, I, I love the thing with the hand and it still holds up. The, the the horror of that and then yeah. what you do to your hand it still holds up after we've seen like almost like snuff film level horror movies like Eli Roth's Hostel and stuff like this it's mm -hmm. there's still a terrifying element to that of what did you do to yourself that you could be so that you could be so hallucinatory from this extreme situation that you could be so unaware of what's going on or yourself that that could that could result so i i'm glad you brought that up because i think there's there's a real there's such a value to that and it probably did inspire you know later movies when you could get away with more with the lifting of the code it probably did i'm yeah. sure it did well, I mean, the scene that it really reminds me of the most is um, is uh, Luis Manuel in his own film, Los Olvidados, um, in 1950. I mean, Los Olvidados, if you watch it, it's, it's essentially, it's, it's, it's very similar to like The Bicycle Thief or, or Bressano or, or a lot of the, the films that are coming, mm -hmm. out of, um, coming out of Italy, out of the, the neorealist movement, except for this one scene where out of nowhere, this guy's complaining that his mother is like feeding the other children in this in the town, right? And he's like, no, mama, that's my meat. He's like, like <laughs> screaming and crying and having this bizarre dream about his mom like eating other people. <laughs> and like, but the, I mean, the rest of it is like this just very neorealistic, very just like sad, you know, story of like urban life and you know, and 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 um, and, and how it's affecting on children, right? It's very similar to like the bicycle thief and and, uh, and other similar films around the time. But uh, this particular out of nowhere there's like this dream so even in the exterminating angel which the whole thing is like a surrealist encounter um uh there you still have like this like dreamscape that that, that Bunuel would always like that would often return to that kind of cuts through the middle of the film it like it something something it just it it's there it's, it's almost like it's like this bizarre like interlude but it doesn't feel like Oh, you, you you took us away from the movie. It's, it it still it, it feels like you know it belongs there, you know. And I you know it, it's 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 amazing we're talking about a film that's only about like an hour and what twenty. Uh, I, what is was it an hour thirty? Thirty. Oh, I'm not sure. All right, um, but it, it's not a long movie. I mean, it, it, so much happens in it, like so much. <laughs> it never lets up. It doesn't let up. You're and and I think going back to the cinematography too. There's always this sense of suspense. He keeps us wondering what's happening next. And I think another reason it works is because if we look at the faces of these vapid upper class characters in the, at the opera and coming from the opera, compared to the looks on their faces. You know, he pans across them at the end when they're at the church, right? Mm. So there has been an impact. Something has changed. Even though there's the appearance that they're going back to this and repeating and doomed to repeat certain things, there has been a shift. There has been a change in them because you see the look on their faces. 
something's been some some sense of privilege and innocence has been has been taken away it's not there the way it there it was before which also tells us that privilege can be taken away a sense of privilege can be taken away a sense of entitlement can be taken away a sense of of misguided security around wealth can be taken away yeah so it clocks in at an hour and 35 a check so like it's it's an hour and 35. Yeah. yeah that's not that's that's like 90 what 95 minutes right yeah so i mean that's not right that's the length that's the length of a typical noir film actually 90 minutes so a lot happens in that 90 minutes you're right so i want to talk about two things <laughs> that predated this that really reminded me of this film um so I, I was really reminded of the Twilight Zone. I had to check the dates as to what came first. The episode, I think it's uh, five characters in a room, a five, four, some some number close to that, um, where you have, um, this also reminded me of 12 Angry Men. It's, it's very much classic in the let's have a bunch of characters with a wide range of personalities in an enclosed environment and make it, it's very perfect for the theater. Um, Kind five of scenario. Five characters in search of an exit. Was it? Uh, yes, that's it. That's that sounds. Five, yeah. Yeah. I know which that's one you're the, talking. Yeah. So we have this plain background, you know, uh, going on, and you have these five characters, and they're all asking each other questions, and they're trying to figure out why they're here, and 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 can they escape, and how do they escape, and so I think there's a lot of that in this film as well. You have all these different characters and we have to find out who they are and um, their different means of escape, their different interpretations of why they are in the situation that they're in and their ideas of how to get out will tell us about them and, and their philosophy. You know, kind of similar to 12 Angry Men, we see the different men and they have different takes on, uh, you know, whether the man is innocent or guilty and the reasons why they think he's guilty, you know, tell us a lot about their character. So yeah, so actually that episode was written first. This also reminded me of Hui Clo, uh, No Exit, um, written by uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, yes. uh, where we have three characters who end up in a room, also perfect for the theater. Um, and I think the the aesthetic being somewhat similar, this elegant kind of uh, European style is very often used in stage productions of, of No Exit. And so you have these three characters and um, uh, one of them uh, understands very clearly early on that, that they're in hell, that he's in hell. Um, he even gets a chance to talk to one of the, the, the guards that uh, puts him in there. And then one of the other, or, Another character knows, she knows, and then another character is in denial about it, which I, I think we see that same dynamic plane here in this film is that you have characters who know, who maybe suspect that this is some form of punishment uh, for, for their actions. And it is a very much kind of like a limbo-esque state here in this film in the exterminating Um And you have this, this sense of being trapped and, and how do you respond to being trapped and 
You know, of course, there have been later on films. Um, have either of you seen The Platform yet? No. You, you've got to watch The Platform. Because mm. my one of my biggest critique, well, it's not a critique. It's just, you know, what I would have liked in my heart of heart is gore and death in this movie. <laughs> wow. And The Platform, it's got it. It's got it. It's the same idea of people being in class, or I mean, enclosed in a tight space, um, seeing their different personalities come out because of that. And uh, it's about class, it's about society, it's about the rich, um, it's about class struggle. And you get to see people kill each other. It's really great. <laughs> I strongly recommend it. Yeah. What year is the platform? Oh, oh, it came out last year. Yeah. Last so year. we're we're talking about differences, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I guess back then. Who knows? Who knows? Are there suggestions of cannibal in cannibalism in this movie? Uh, I think there's a lot. I think Gene mentioned Francisco uh when he notices the couple, the blood coming in. I think he tastes it. Tastes it. I think you're right. I I yeah. you know what that was subtle because he's acting horrified. But I think you're right. There's a moment where he kind of, at a certain point, like licks his, licks, licks his fingers or something like this. Yeah. So yeah. good. I, I gotta say, I actually really enjoy that character watching the film again, because he is a jerk. And he, and he is. <laughs> He fits well in the circumstance, doesn't he? He's, right, right. He I does. Think he fits. He, everybody knows that guy when you're in a bad circumstance. If you've ever been like a kid and you go out into the woods together thinking, hey, isn't this a great idea? Let's just go this way. Let's just go that way. You end up in the woods somewhere. And there's always that one person who's like totally annoying. You're like, oh, why did we bring them? Why did we bring them? Oh, he's that guy. Right. See, that's what, but that's why the film's so like interesting about the, the, the restoration of order and, and the breakdown of order. Because without the restoration of order, he had been killed immediately. Mm. And it tells it, it asks you the question like, is it good to restore order? Like maybe he should have been killed immediately. <laughs> like, maybe, like, like you know that was, you know, like I don't know. It's counterfactual. We don't know. But <laughs> so at one point, he he has a virtue in in his obnoxious trait of telling the truth. The rest of them, you know, are are into lying and preserving the beer. Veneer of you know, and he says, "You smell like a hyena." Yeah, yeah. smell like yeah. hyena. We all smell. We all smell yeah, like yeah. hyena. I, I will tell the truth. <laughs> right, but he doesn't offer any solutions. Yeah, that's just crying. He's he knows how to whine and point out problems. Yeah, see, like the Valkyrie also tells the truth, right? But then, like, right. he, like he speaks solutions. You know, like how are we get? Well, what are we gonna do about it? You know, like you know that that, that that's yeah. Where, but I wanted to say, like, you know, like, you beat me to, to mentioning No Exit, but um, uh, another one I would remind me of is, uh, what, Six Characters in Search of an Author, which uh, oh, wow. came out in 1920, which is actually, I, I probably more likely the inspiration for, um, for um, The Twilight Zone's Five Characters in Search of an Exit. So six, six, six Characters in Search of an Author. Is when was Six Characters in Search of an Author? What year? Six Characters, 1921. 1921. So Six Characters in Search of an Author is a play about, um, you know, they're having rehearsal for this first day of a play, and these six characters show up, and they're not real people. They're characters 
who are in search of being in a play. And <laughs> the playwright's like, get the fuck out of here. And he can't get rid of them. <laughs> They're demanding to, you know, like to, to be a part of, of the play. So it's just kind of. So they're actually more aware of who they are than the five characters uh, in Search of an Exit. But six characters in Search of an Exit is pretty, really great. But No Exit, you know, No Exit, you know, Extremity Angel is probably almost a direct, uh, a direct, um, a direct uh, influence or, or, or direct uh, knockoff. I don't know. I don't know being charitable, where, but like No Exit's so inartistic. It's so fucking boring. It's so. What? guys just standing around talking about like well here's the way the world really is like like in 20 minute fucking speech like no man no man what's great about being well is funny it's funny as as you guys are talking i'm reminded of charlotte perkins gilman the yellow wallpaper did you guys ever read the yellow wallpaper no no what's that oh uh uh it's 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 basically what she's most known for and of course having maintained her middle maiden name was very unusual because this was the victorian era so this would have probably predated six characters in search of an author and it's basically about a woman who is sequestered for her so-called mental health not enable not able to work not able to write as she would normally and she's slowly going mad in this room. And the yellow wallpaper plays a role. It's really good. And it's kind of, again, kind of an early precursor to what we'd call psychological horror, probably, you know, and in the wake of modern psychotherapy and things like this and, and what is really good for the human mind or the human soul or the human spirit. So I definitely recommend the yellow wallpaper if you haven't read it. And you'll see the, it's definitely got the sequestered element. It's guess, definitely has this, how do societal norms break down? How does madness ensue? Why does it ensue? What goes through, what Charlotte Perkins Gilman did was far more compelling than Sartre, but I dare say, because she delves more into the mental state of the character and what that sequestering does to the mind uh d- does to the spirit so yeah i'd recommend it for sure we have a question from the audience should we should we, should we... Ah! It, it it came about 40 minutes ago but you know like I, oh. I'm... oh okay it's not my style to like you know <laughs> we were all on a roll we were on a roll sorry we would have gotten to it sooner yeah yeah it, it's not my style to uh to uh you know I don't know. Anyways, um, near the end of the movie, people outside refer to a house as a tomb. Those words seem to echo in the last shots of the cathedral. Another tomb? Question mark. Can you talk about the role of the church in this? Oh, this question, Doug, this question comes from friend of the show, Doug Jacobs. Oh wow. Well. Way to go. That's well, question. They they do notice a strong odor uh, coming from the house. But it is pretty funny that instead of uh, assuming that they're all dead, which would be a reasonable uh, assumption to make, and that's what the terrible smell is, and we know that there are three corpses in there, so in, in effect it is a tomb, um, but they assume that it's the smell of all of the stuff in the kitchen uh, having gone bad. So they're the, you know, the juxtaposition with that, um, 
But yeah, I feel like, you know, if they hadn't have gotten out, they would all be dead and it would be a tomb. Um, so yeah, the idea of a tomb can't escape. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what, perhaps what Gene was uh, speaking to earlier that they have undergone some transformation uh, that this process, perhaps they did learn something uh, from it. So maybe it could be their resurrection or something, you know, metaphor. Um, but I don't know. That's the, that is an interesting question. Well, I, mean, I think the whole thing is about like how we're conformed by like societal norms. I mean, we, that we're, 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 we're stuck in societal norms, right? So they can't leave because no one else will leave. Because like no one will leave, they can't leave. As individual people, they can't leave because it's not time to go. And there's not, there's just no, there's no initiative to leave. There's no, whatever. We don't see other people leaving. Since I don't see other people leaving, I may not leave myself, right? So like that kind of is like what's happening, right? And it's obviously, it's obviously an exaggeration. But you know, what's interesting is that, you know, like uh, uh, they keep blaming Eduardo. Um, Raul keeps blaming Eduardo for like them being, being stuck there, right? But in yeah. a way, you know, Raul's not wrong. Like, you know he's not completely right because he he also is is taking no initiative to leave right but of everyone yeah. it is eduardo who keeps like he keeps like molly coddling all of them so that they can like feel okay right so like they're all like in his house taking off their clothes laying down kicking off their shoes <laughs> and his response instead of like get the fuck out of my house is to take off his own coat and he makes a big production about how he's gonna take off his own coat yeah, yeah. every time he has like oh i've got a proposal why don't we do it this way why don't we do he keeps trying to find ways to normalize the the issue and the problems right so while he seems the most genteel civilized because he's trying to he's trying to prevent you know he's trying to he's trying to uh, prevent the outbreak of total chaos right um, right he uh he actually in a way is facilitating their inaction right mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I'm glad you brought that up about that because I was going to bring that up too about how the removal of the the coat and someone comments on how you know essentially I'm paraphrasing but how gauche it is and don't they understand proper behavior well let's not make them feel uncomfortable let's do it ourselves to answer Doug's question I've given this a lot of thought Doug and I think you picked up on something important because what you'll notice at the end is that the women, in fact, one of them is wearing a black veil and they're wearing black as if they are attending a funeral of sorts. And we don't know if this mm. is the funeral of the three people who have died in the house. We never actually, I was waiting oh, for wow. a moment maybe where they show us three caskets or some idea of whose funeral. Cause I definitely got the sense that this was a funeral that they were attending. And I think like the the privilege of the house that they're trapped in look at the church they didn't pick a small country church where you would have people who were farmers let's say in a congregation what you had was a very large cathedral mm -hmm. and the wealthy still are vested in this cathedral doomed to repeat <laughs> now they can't get out of that either and the sheep are running back in again just as they did to the room and we're we're getting this sense that i suppose i think possibly what we're being given is a sense that the wealthy roman catholic church not necessarily the simple 
church, not a simple country church of a simple congregation, but the, the, the wealth of the church mirroring the wealth of these upper classes. They're both burying themselves in a sense. They're both doomed to be stuck in this sort of, this sort of, this prison, this tomb, if you will, of their own creation that they don't know how to get out of. Um, and they don't know how to get out of it in part because they're, as Matt brought up, they're refusing to get out of it because they keep applying the same norms, keeping themselves in it. So I think that's a really, really salient point about that kind of mirroring. Why are they trapped in this room, in this house, in this mansion, and then with the gates, and we see something similar with the church? I don't think, it, I think whether it's at a mansion or at a large cathedral, the wealthy have encased themselves as if in a tomb. So good, so good. I think. <laughs> so, uh, Woody Allen could come back and be like, no, that's not what I meant at all. <laughs> like in Woody Allen's Manhattan, remember he brings yeah, the guy yeah, out. Yeah, no, you, so sir, you don't understand my work at all. But it is, so it's, it, it, it's the sense that I had watching it, that that's what was going on. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Doug, too, because you, you, you bring forward a really good question there. You know what, Luis Manuel, though, when, when once asked, like, how would you define yourself? He said, if asked to define myself, I would leave the room without saying a word. Mm. <laughs> I do not define myself. <laughs> yeah, so that's what of... the art is there for, right? That, I mean, that, that we can do that. We can look at someone else's art. God forbid when we start doing that to our own and we become our own worst critic and then how do you create, you know? Yeah. There's, the, there's the phrasing in, uh, there's the phrasing in uh, Leo McCary's uh, um, an affair to remember that was my mother's favorite movie uh the artist would create but the critic would destroy <laughs> so keep creating and don't don't uh don't be your worst critic because you'll probably be destructive to the very process of creation uh, but uh, it's interesting when we're reflecting on this and looking at because the fact that we can wonder what the filmmaker meant is a step in the right direction Yeah. for a filmmaker to provoke, is it, does, does it mean this, could it mean that? I don't know if it matters so much what it does or doesn't mean or who's right about what interpretation. I think it's more important that it is subject to interpretation and Lynch you know, David Lynch has the same sensibility. Don't ask me what this means. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because if it matters subjectively to one person, if it matters this, if it means that, that's significant. Someone else comes along and says, well, no, I think it means this. That's significant too. And they can be completely opposite of each other. With people's interpretations of my own creative work, I only like that when, when what they come up with is better. Worse? <laughs> That's what I meant. You're right. Oh, genius. Worse, uh, no, 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 no. Intent. Artist intent. That is yeah. not what I intended. If it's better, oh, oh, yes, it is an open. Anyone can draw their own. Yeah, yes. Let's release it. it. It belongs to the world. <laughs> 
You know, I've been thinking too about our conversation last time and we talked a little bit about this. And what I thought about was, and I think I've learned this making films too, that there is a poetry to film because even when you're editing, there's a certain rhythm to a scene and there's a certain cadence to a scene. It's not just the dialogue. Mm. It's the motion of the camera, the music, the characters. It's all those different elements coming together. There is a poetry to cinema. There is a poetry to cinema, for sure. Because even like I was describing the cinematography in, in you know, The Exterminating Angel and how mm. the, the, the camera moves suspensefully and that motion and the time that it takes to get from outside the gate to inside the gate to inside the house. There is, there's a poetic rhythm to that that I think is really interesting. And now I'm starting to notice it in other films. What's the poetry? We could ask ourselves, what's the poetry of that film, right? Because there's a rhythm and a cadence. There are verses in the form of certain clips and it all kind of pieces together a certain way. And it tells that story. So that, that, and we're all poets here. So I think, cause I can see you guys, your eyes are kind of going, yeah, that's really true. When you think about how you're constructing a poem, think about how you're constructing a scene or a motion picture. It's not so different, is it? It really isn't. The tools may be different, but there is a structure there. Yeah. Even in a non-structure, there's still a certain, like there's E. Cummings of movies and then you have the Walt Whitmans of movies. Right, 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 right. I think it all depends on, yeah, what you're, um, if you're drawing mostly on images, an image might come fully formed in your mind. Sometimes it's a sound, which then you'll try to recreate with words, the words themselves, the sound within a word or, the, the combination of, of the words, which would be similar to uh, in film, the edit that you would use, the camera work, um, like you were pointing out, um, you know, creates different moods and whatnot. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was going back, I was thinking back to um, the meaning of the title of this film, yes. Terminating <laughs> Angel, and competing meanings, this, back to this idea of of, uh, you know, what, what could a meaning be and how many different ways could we look at something um, like this if there is no absolute, you know, if there is no definitive answer, you know, what, what can we draw? And um, so the first time I watched the film, I was thinking, okay, the exterminating angel is this force that's acting upon them. That, that's what it's referring to. Like the um, angel of death uh, in the story of Moses and the plagues, um, the exterminating angel is the angel who is flying over and in this case is acting upon them as, um, and like the Israelites uh, sheltered in in Egypt uh, during Passover, um, these people are sheltered in, um, but they are the exterminating angel, the angel of death is coming for them, right? So I took it that way and there's even a reference. Um, one of the characters who's dying, the, an older man, I forget what his role is in society or his name, um, but he says something, I think he awakens from a fever dream and he says something about, um, I'm glad that I will go before he comes or mm -hmm. it comes. Something, I think he says he, 
So I think we're given to some clue that he's had some kind of vision of an actual figure um, who could be the titular exterminating angel. Um, this time I watched it, I came up with an alternative explanation for the exterminating angel, that perhaps the Valkyrie is the exterminating angel. He exterminates their routine. Um, and I thought about that, like, from the beginning of her breaking, her breaking, her breaking the glass, right? So from the beginning, we're given the idea that she's the one to, um, you know, she's the iconoclast. She is the rebel of the group, right? From the, she's the first one, right? So she's breaking out, right? Literally from the beginning, she's breaking out of societal norms of the physical confines of this space, right? And then at the end, she is the one who figures it out or figures out some kind of explanation that perhaps solves this, right? And what's very crucial that she does in replicating this moment that's not done the first time is that she yells out, nah, it's 3 a.m. The first time he says, it's 3 a.m. They say, oh, but oh, yeah, and what, how's your factory or how's was your trip or what kind of shoes do you like wearing or so, something banal having to do with rich culture. The second time is it's 3 a.m. And we got to go. <laughs> We're tired. We got to go. Which then they all, yes, yes, we have to go. We have to go. Um, so I did. I kind of saw her as, you know, a Valkyrie as a winged. Uh, figure very often in folklore like an angel you know am, am i crazy matt today? no am, am, am i reaching <laughs> but the valkyrie still needs everyone to everything to be the way it was in order to leave yeah and so the right. valkyrie is still conformist i mean not none among them are, are completely break from conformity like none among them none among them can leave without the rest of them leaving they all they all need something to be confirmed. So the Valkyrie comes closest, but right. even the Valkyrie. So I mean, if you look at like the two kind of rebel characters, really the Valkyrie and Raul, right? Those mm. are the two that are just like, you know, fuck this, fuck that, fuck. You know, like they're, <laughs> and the Valkyrie even more so because they just throw the rock through the window, slaps Raul, right? But they're the, they're the... And, and Francisco, because Francisco proposes to push someone out of the room. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. If he can break the barrier yeah. by pushing someone out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but the rest of them, I mean, like even the Masons, they're 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 thinking that like you know, maybe that maybe the bear's a Mason, he'll save us, right? <laughs> <laughs> Wait for they're still like they're still sending all this pomp and ceremony. Um, that's true, Francisco as well. But like this kind of a, uh, you know, the, the uh, yeah. But I mean, but um, but the Valkyrie, yes, even even she needs to, she needs like everything to be where. But it, it's 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 so fascinating that, that when they finally do escape, um, they, she says like you know it's it's time to leave, and then they're like, and then then th then they all ask for confirmation like, is it true? Is it time to go? <laughs> like, and they confirm it to each other, and then they're able to leave. Once they confirm it to each other that it is time to go. That all that was all that was really necessary was someone to tell them it's time <laughs> to go, and then together they could all leave. And so, like I don't know, there's, there's, it's obviously exaggerated, it's obviously hyper, you know, whatever. But this, these, these things yeah. that we 
these these uh, it, it, it's it's a delicate balance though because like if everyone just acted on their own and and the, and and just did what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it like you know you'd have like car accidents and stuff like so like right like there is like a purpose to to order there is a purpose to to organizing um there's a purpose of what social contract right um and what what Luis Bunuel plays with is like is like you know is this question of the social con? I mean, all those films really uh, uh, playing with like the question of the social contract. Is it like, is it good? Is it bad? Is it whatever? It simply is. It, it exists, and you know, and and there's there's good elements to it. And there's bad elements to it, and it, it neither confirms nor nor completely tears up the social contract. You know, but it's there. It's it's ever present, and sometimes it's oppressive. And sometimes it's it's necessary because if you totally tore it up, it would just be like it would it would come off like 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 the fountainhead, like Ayn Rand or something like that. Like it'd be like libertarian kind of like there'd be a character who rose above them all and like knew everything at all times. I'm, like, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do, and everyone would benefit from their action. And that's not the case, right? Because the one that's like you know people that can break from the norm, like like uh, like um, like uh, like the the whiny guy. Right, you smell like a hyena, right? Like that didn't help the situation. Now you can say like, oh, he was honest. The rest of them are lying, but it didn't help the situation. Yeah. Like, wasn't like, oh yeah. yeah. And then after he told them they were all hyenas, they were able to leave. Like, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> or Raul, like, let's go kill this guy. You know, like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting perspective of like, if we sacrifice the host, then we'll all survive. Yeah. You know, trying to find this solution, sort of. I thought, I you know, if you think about it, aiming all the blame at one man is what we still do. You right, know, right, it's right. it's so and so's fault. It's one person's fault that people are dying from coronavirus. It's one person's fault uh, when uh, a, a swarm of a civilization falls to ruin. It's one person's fault. Um, and I suppose that in a sense is its own sacrificial lamb, as it were. When I thought about the extermination, because I thought about the title and I love, see, none of the analyses are incorrect because they're all applicable. I mean, when I think about the extermination, exterminating angel, I'm thinking back to when we have from last week, Lord of the Flies, and we have Simon and he says, maybe we're the beast. Maybe the exterminating angel is also us. Maybe the exterminating angel is, it's all the things that hold us back. Sometimes our own wealth can choke us. Sometimes our lack of wealth can choke us. Sometimes our societal norms can choke us. Sometimes our need to be approved of or accepted can choke us. Any one of these things can kill us. You know, so the exterminating angel becomes that which kills us all, I suppose, in one form or another. And it comes in that form, whatever form that is that, you know, for the guy, for the guy, you know, licking the blood and talking about people smelling like hyenas, it's his own irritating nature. Someone at one point almost wants to kill him and his sister stops it, you know, so it's our own undoing, whatever that thing is, that entombs us, that entraps us, that encases us, that prevents us from being truly free. And 
then what ultimately frees us is some kind of agreement. It's the let's act as if we acted before and that will let us out of the room, but it doesn't really set us free because now we're in a church and we're once again entombed. So there's the illusion of freedom compared to true freedom in this movie for sure. Right, and they, they, they kind of, they, they kind of, but in, in, in both situations, whether they were stuck or whether they left, they all moved as a unit. They couldn't act independently of one another. They, they couldn't, because they were, they were bound by these, bound. These, 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 these kind of like norms. They're, they're bound by norms. They were entrapped. They were entombed, so to speak, by these norms. And I think that that, that is kind of like a very constant, um, it's a constant in, in Luis Bunuel's work is like how we, how we find ourselves like, just like, binding ourselves to these 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 very like arbitrary things that end up you know they end up completely defining our entire lives you know and um but again like but again like the, he's also aware of the chaos that would ensue if there were no norms whatsoever so like that it's kind of like it's it's presented it's presented that way because it's not presented as though like and everyone would be better off if they just like you know look we're all just like murder one another you know it's not really presented like that you know that's right like, it, it's presented with like also like what will happen if like everything breaks down as well so it's um yeah yeah it's very in the in the repetition it uh it's it reminded me a lot of last year at marion bad as well this kind of like ornate palatial uh, estate and people trapped and going through repeating motions and whatnot uh, i also thought of uh as far as the survival aspect goes it reminded me of lifeboat um, oh, you have all the people on the ship and the cla- the the clash of the classes going on and survival and people backstabbing each other and you do you have these episodes with uh, Francisco stealing the heroin I think is it is it, or me- it's some kind of drug <laughs> I really love how the guy uh, at Mundo casually refers to it he's like yeah oh, keep like a morphine a morphine like a painkiller. Yeah, we keep this around, you know, for for good times, you know. Yeah, we keep it around for. <laughs> and um, so so yeah yeah. Oh, well, man, let's think about know. the titles. The titles. I mean, the titles we've addressed so far: the Seventh Seal, the Lord of the and Lord of the Flies, and the Exterminating Angel. There's poetry to those titles, without a doubt. You know. If you think about the titles and how they reflect the story, titling is really critical to a, a motion picture, much like titling is really, really critical to a poem. Or not titling a poem is critical to a poem. It's some ominous murderous shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like those three titles yeah. back to back to back. That's some like some morbid shit. The Lord of the Flies. Wow. Seven Seal, Lord of the Flies, Exterminating <laughs> Angels. This is like. So let us not let us not be like oh. the characters, the exterminate angel. Let us not on. be trapped. Let us not be trapped, and let us <laughs> let us bring this conversation. Yes, it's true, my friends. It is time <laughs> to wrap this conversation up. Um, oh no! Very very excited. Oh, it goes so fast. It does. So we'll, 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 let's let's do let's do. But you're like a big bear, like a man. Huh? You're like a big bear, man. <laughs> Are you a Mason or a non-Mason bear? Probably a non-Mason. Now has come the hour. I ho. I ho. It has come. It has come the hour of maximum depression. To say the unutterable phrase. All right. Well, let's, okay, let's go around 
and like say like you know our, our, our concluding thoughts on this movie and then we'll introduce what's happening next week um so again this is an this is an incredible film i suggest everyone check it out um in terms of, of the content there there's so much to read into why things happen and why people do the things they do um there's deep deep level psychology it's a hilarious film uh structurally it's really interesting because you're watching um an ensemble piece that has like multiple character arcs so it's not really a boring moment because you're watching like maybe like i mean there's, there's probably about 15 people in the room but there's like probably about like seven or eight arcs that you're just watching like kind of loom right so it's not there's, there's really never a dull moment it, it, it moves really fast and it's just a it's a really fascinating movie and um and i suggest everyone check it out especially during quarantine because it's it's, it's, it's <laughs> you probably felt some <laughs> i agree with matt i i think it's very i like i said this was my first viewing and i think i'm the only one of us who this was my first time watching it correct you guys had seen it before so yeah. I, I felt like I was unwrapping a present. I mean, I, I really enjoyed, again, the, the suspenseful cinematography, the, the oddities and the peculiarities of the characters. And it does compel you to think more deeply beyond the surface of things to a, a, another reality of what you don't always see. So I definitely would recommend it too, for sure. Um, I would recommend watching The Exterminating Angel if you want a comprehensive understanding of uh, Louis Bunuel's work, and you should because he's one of our great filmmakers. Um, also watch if you want to understand the uh, casual reference in the film uh, Midnight in Paris. Uh, made by that terrible, awful human being, uh, Woody Allen. Great film, though. <laughs> and there's a reference to this film yeah. in there. So definitely, definitely watch this to understand that reference. Um, watch this if you're a fan of chamber plays, uh, many of which were mentioned. Watch if you're a fan of The Twilight Zone, because uh, it very much plays. Uh, I've described it to a few people. And they say, oh, sounds like the Twilight Zone. I say, yep, it's like a two-hour <laughs> version of a Twilight Zone episode in Spanish. Uh, it's really good, though. Um, but I would ultimately say my tastes run more towards this very similar work, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. That's where I ultimately come down on this one. Have we chosen a film for next week, speaking of yes. Yes. Next week, we're actually going to be joined for bringing on a guest, as we discussed. Uh, so we're going to bring on our first guest, uh, Doug Jacobs, and he has selected a film for us. And uh, next week, the film we will be reviewing is The Sweet Smell of Success. Yes! 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 <laughs> That's a Criterion Collection film. It is a Criterion Collection film. Fantastic. Matt Cedillo. Oh, That's great for a treat. You're a cookie full of arsenic. <laughs> Take a bite out. The cat's in the bag and the bag's in the... <laughs> Alright, see you next week. Bye. Uh...